Hi, my name is Lily McCormick. My pronouns are she, her, and today I'll be reading from Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Then Jonah prayed to his God from the belly of the fish. He prayed, In trouble, deep trouble, I prayed to God. He answered me. From the belly of the grave I cried, Help! You heard my cry. You threw me into the ocean's depths, into a watery grave, with ocean waves, ocean breakers crashing over me. I said, I've been thrown away, thrown out, out of your sight. I'll never again lay eyes on your holy temple. Ocean gripped me by the throat. The ancient abyss grabbed me and held me tight. My head was all tangled in seaweed, at the bottom of the sea where the mountains take root. I was f as far down as a body can go, and the gates were slamming shut behind me forever. Yet you pulled me up from that grave alive. Oh God, my God. When my life was slipping away, I remembered God, and my prayer got through to you, made it all the way to your holy temple. Those who worship hollow gods, god frauds, walk away from their only true love, but I'm worshiping you, God, calling out in thanksgiving, and I'll do what I promised I'd do. Salvation belongs to God. Then God spoke to the fish, and it vomited up Jonah on the seashore. This is the word of the Lord. I don't have a pocket back here, so I'm just going to have to set this right here because I don't have the dexterity to get that clipped on my back pocket, so we'll just pray for the best. How about that? All right, scripture discussion this morning. What do you hear when you hear those words, that prayer of thanksgiving that Jonah offers to God? Yeah, Sarah says how often we are afraid and God comes through. That's good. Yes. That's interesting. Yes, Jonah's praying to his God, not to God. There's some personal component to that. Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> Jen says it sounds very transactional. This verse on its surface sounds like, oh, look at Jay, Jonah just being so sweet and nice and turning back to God. Oh, great. But I don't know that that's what's happening. <laughs> yes. It seems like it. Exactly. Like, yeah, I think you're on to something there. Corey says this seems like this is like at the end of the third day kind of prayer. Like, okay, God, help. Like, what was he doing the other two days? Anyone else? Yeah. Ooh, Heidi says, makes you wonder how long he would have stayed there. How long was he willing to stay there before he came to this realization? Because if we've learned anything about Jonah to this point, he's pretty stubborn. So let's look at uh, a piece of artwork this morning. We went through some artwork last week, and this was the one that I really wanted to show you because I think it's so funny. Can I switch out to a cordless mic?
the joys of having a female pastor. Okay. So there was this one piece of artwork, circa 1280, that I just think is hilarious. And as I shared with you last week, I found this on this, uh, I found these series of Jonah artwork uh, on, a, blo- on a, a blog. And what they have to say, their commentary, is just so witty and charming. And this one was the wittiest of all. And this is what they had to say about this particular portrait. Like many of us, Jonah spent the first part of the COVID quarantine worried about sourcing his toilet paper. (laughs) Thankfully, this illuminated manuscript shows that he he need not have been so concerned. This disturbingly cheerful whale on ecstasy doubled as a kayak so they could make several quick trips to Costco by the sea. One hopes he used his prophetic powers, or just common sense, to predict that the people of Nineveh also needed toilet paper and brought them some. However, the book of Jonah does not say definitively. So last week we started with the first six verses of Jonah 1. We didn't get much further than that. So let's just recap a little bit. God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh which was the capital city of the enemies, of the oppressors. And God says, I want you to go there and tell them about me and that they need to repent, and I will, I will forgive them. But Jonah doesn't like them so much. These are not nice people. They can be pretty nasty. And so Jonah, rightfully, in some ways, doesn't want to go. So he runs. So he runs, and then um, in verse 7 of chapter 1... The sailors, uh, yes, chapter 7. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So Jonah's going down into the bottom of the ship, and he's sleeping in the middle of a thunderstorm. And the sailors are, like, throwing things off the ship, trying to figure out what's happening, where is this coming from, what's going on. And they finally get Jonah awake. And, and they're, they're like, okay, we have, so Jonah's up on the, on the top of the ship with the other sailors, and they're like, whose fault is this? Whose God is to blame? And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. <clears throat> I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. All of a sudden, Jonah's like, yeah, I get it. God, I'm not going to be able to outrun you. You caught me. And so Jonah acknowledges that his God is the God of the sea and the dry land. And then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more impetuous. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Jonah does not value these sailors' lives. He is clearly not dialed in to how afraid they are of this storm going on around them. He cares about Jonah and his mission in running from God. He no longer, he does not value their life. 
He certainly doesn't value the Ninevites' life, and he no longer values his own. So, but, but Jonah says, throw me into the sea and this will stop. He doesn't volunteer to jump into the sea. He says, hey, you do it. You throw me into the sea and this sea will stop. Phyllis Tribble says that Jonah has tried to flee the presence of God by physical flight on a ship to Tarshish, and that's not working. Next, he tries a psychological flight by sleeping in the hold of the ship, and that doesn't work. Now he tries absolute flight through death. Now, Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh. But if you notice the sailor's reaction to all of this turmoil around them, and he says, throw me into the water, it's because I'm disobeying my God that this is happening. The sailors don't do that to him. I can imagine them looking at him going, are you crazy? We're not going to kill you. We're going to figure this out. They had more compassion on him than he did on them. Now, this episode did not make these sailors become monotheists. This did not make them worship one God and one God only. But in that moment, they did recognize the power of Jonah's God. And that was the one that they were praying to. Phyllis Tribble also says the violence of Yahweh in perpetuating the crisis contrasts with the passivity of the deity in resolving it. God doesn't end this storm until Jonah gets thrown over, until Jonah is thrown over. These sailors are innocent victims. Jonah's the guilty one. And Jonah's, Jonah's struggles threatens others, but he doesn't seem to care that much. So this idea that the sailors spared him is supposed to make us contrast their response to Jonah's because, you see, Jonah's supposed to be the good guy. Jonah is the Israelite. He's, the, he, he's supposed to be the good person, kind of like the Samaritan that we read about in the Gospels. Jonah's supposed to be the good guy, but in this story, he is not the good guy. The writer of this parable does not depict Jonah as the good guy. The writer of this parable depicts the sailors first as the good guy. Now, in Jonah 2, we see that he's been swallowed by the fish, and still, Jonah does not get what he wants because he wants to die. He doesn't want to be alive in the belly of a fish. He is running from God and trying to run from God so completely that he no longer is alive. So his plans get thwarted again. So God and Jonah are still in this struggle, this tug of war. And in verses 3 through 4, Jonah says, You threw me into ocean's depths, into a watery grave, with ocean's waves, ocean breakers crashing over me. And I said, I've been thrown away, thrown out, out of your sight. I'll never again lay eyes on your holy temple. Jonah is blaming God for this predicament that he's in. You threw me into ocean's depths. You did this, God. This is your fault, God. And this is just one of the many problems of a theology of retribution. If I do good, God must reward me. But if I do bad, if I do wrong, then I must be punished. 
And this is a theology that's damaging to many of us here. This was the theology that I was raised on, that if I were to do something wrong or disobedient, that I would be punished. But if I did something good, then I could expect something good. And typically in my world, that good and bad look like this. Well, maybe I get the best parking spot at Walmart beside the door, like closest to the door. God's rewarding me. That was the theology that I grew up on. And it's very damaging and hurtful because I don't know about you, but I have, for me, I don't see God operating that way. Not in my life. The writer of Jonah believes this is the God that he's talk, this talking about. And for the most part in the Hebrew Scriptures, we read of a God where the, where the people, the Israelites in the Hebrew Scriptures, believe that God operated this way. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. And it's fair because that's the way the people around them saw their gods, right? If we pray enough for rain, we get rain. If we have sin, we get drought. It's how all of the gods operated around them, so it's only fair that they would apply that to their god. It made sense. It, it rang something true for them because how else do you explain the unexplainable? How else do you explain things? If, if somebody dies unexpectedly, how do you explain that? This retributive theology says, I have served you, God, faithfully for a long time, and you should treat me better than this. Oh, we wouldn't say that out loud. <laughs> we wouldn't, but we think it sometimes. Or, what have I done to deserve this? God owes him. Jonah has been a faithful servant, and God owes him better than this. And when Jonah says he will never lay his eyes again on God's holy temple, he's saying, I have served you without fail for all of my life, and I've always placed you, God, above all others and all priorities, and this is what I get from you. If you take me out, God, how can I continue to serve you and honor your holy temple? I won't be there to serve that holy temple, God. If God allows him to remain in that fish, how can he continue to remain faithful? How can he continue to serve God? Now, there's dissonance here, and I hope you're catching it. Jonah wants to die, but all of a sudden he's telling God, but if you kill me, I can't serve you anymore like I have always done. Jonah kind of doesn't know what he wants. Where does he want to go with this? Does he want to be saved out of the belly of this fish? Yeah, he wants to be saved out of the belly of the fish. But what you don't notice in this prayer of thanksgiving is that he doesn't relent. He doesn't repent. He doesn't say to God, if you save me from the belly of this fish, I will go to Nineveh. I don't know that I had ever caught that before. He wants to be saved. But he doesn't want to go to Nineveh still. He still doesn't want to go to Nineveh. I grew up with um, this idea of retributive theology. And, and there was a pastor in my 20s that I dearly loved. 
But he would, he would put it this way. He would say that when we've been disobedient to God, God reserves the right to take us to the woodshed. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're going to the woodshed when you've been living a life of disobedience. That makes God scary, right? Like, can I be this much disobedient and I can miss the woodshed? Do I have to be like this much disobedient before I go to the woodshed? Which one is it? How far across the line can I go before I eventually get taken to the woodshed? If we were to treat our kids this way, what would we say? We'd say it's child abuse, right? That's child abuse. Yes. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Vicki says it also turns people into monsters because if God, if you don't like this person, or if you think this God is do, this person's doing wrong, then it makes me a monster because I'm going to punish you. And it becomes twisted, especially as a person that has some authority, as an authority figure. This becomes very problematic. If God is taking you to the woodshed, you just take it. You deserve it. Take your punishment and then receive the grace and mercy that God wants to give you. I believed that for a very long time. Even though practically in my own life, I don't know that that was really working. I was thinking this morning, I bet I could go back to some journals that I had in my 20s and 30s. And I could bet you money. I wrote in some journals. I've been disobedient. And I know this time is in, I'm in the woodshed right now. I get it. But God, I, I pray for mercy. That's how I saw God. Never examining it further for myself to see if that's the way I really saw God. That's how I was told to see God. And I accepted it. Now, when I was in the woodshed, what I would have considered the woodshed, here's the problem with this retributive justice, this retributive theology. When you're in the woodshed for disobedience, you, will, you could spend your entire time there going, God, I'm so sorry, I messed up, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Never really examining what's really happening. Maybe there, is a, there, maybe there is a part of our life that's really kind of out of whack. We're not being as kind. We're not being as merciful. We're not being as full of justice toward others. And rather than examine that, then I can just say, God, I'm so sorry. Because the bottom line is we just want out of the woodshed. Right? We want it to stop. We want the woodshed to stop. It lets us off the hook. Rather than being a mirror for us, like I t we talked about last week about Jonah, the, the parable of Jonah being a mirror for us of how am I like Jonah? How do I see the world like Jonah? Do I see the world like Jonah? Do I, do I, experiencing, do I experience God the way that Jonah does? Rather than it be a mirror that leads me to something better and something good, if we just use it as, well, this is what God does. 
You disobey God, he's coming after you, and you're in trouble. You are in trouble. That way of seeing God, to me, as punitive, leaves us feeling broken. And even despair. It doesn't bring healing, it brings judgment of ourselves and of others. It is that feeling of, I'll never be able to get it right. When will I learn? When will I get this right? I mess up every time in this area, and here I am again. How can I ever get it? perpetuates the idea that we are broken. And that's just not the way I think Jesus really sees us. Jonah thought he was good. He had done things right, and he deserved better for God, from God. And God was holding up a mirror and saying to Jonah, examine yourself. I'm giving you a pause right now, this three days in the belly of a fish, to examine yourself, to think about who you are, and if this is who you want to continue to be. In verse 5, we see that the scripture reads, The waters closed in over me, the deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah has changed his stance on God. God is no longer his destroyer, but his deliverer. And in verse 7, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true, true loyalty. But see, Jonah can't help himself. Because in one sentence, God, you are my deliverer, you're not my destroyer. And just another sentence over, but those people, <laughs> those people. Yet again, we get judgy Jonah. He cannot keep it fixed on himself because, my gosh, isn't it so much easier just to judge other people? Isn't that the easy way out? Then taking that mirror and saying, okay, why am I really running from God? Why do I hate the Ninevites this much? Why didn't I care about the sailors dying? Why didn't that, why didn't that matter to me? Those people, those people. They worship vain idols and they forsake their true loyalty. He's not going to miss his chance to remind God of how awful those Ninevites are. This word loyalty, it's, it's the Hebrew word for hesed, abounding in steadfast, steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated kindness. Here it's translated abounding in steadfast love. Jonah is trying to say to God, that he is good, that he has abounded in steadfast love. But the Ninevites have not. Not even thinking for one second, he hadn't done it either. Because their outward, the way they live their lives is so terrible and so bad and so contrary to the ways of God, they're the bad ones. They're the bad ones. Who is Jonah speaking of in verses 8 and 9 when he says, 
but I, vo- but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. He goes on with his judginess to say, I will sacrifice, I will pay my vow, but they won't. They're not going to. They won't. I will. But what he doesn't realize is that the Ninevites will be that people. They will be those kind of people if he'd ever give them a chance. Jonah is speaking about a group of people that he assumes who they are. He assumes this is who they are. And soon he's going to find out just how wrong he is about this group of people. Phyllis Tribble in her commentary on this whole psalm says, Although his prayer of eight verses is ostensibly thanksgiving to God, in it he uses first-person singular 26, 26 times as subject, object, or possessive. None of these references are self-effacing. They are all boastful. I don't know that I heard that the first time I ever read this Thanksgiving of Jonah. You have to get a little bit deeper. We have to get a little bit bit deeper to see what's going on underneath. Between Jonah's self-absorption and his judgment of who he thinks the Ninevites are, the fish had had enough, and the scripture says it vomited him out. (laughs) Tribble says the fish got nauseated by Jonah. Like, I've, I can't take any more of you. Get out of me. You are just, you were revolting. This weekend, we had the opportunity to go to New York for a couple of days. So if I burst out into Don't Rain on My Parade, just completely overlook me. We went to the 9-11 Memorial this weekend. It's my, it my first time to ever be in New York. And so I wanted to see the memorial and... Uh, and I wanted my kid to see it as well. But it reminded me of when all that happened all those years ago, of how uh, I, I was in Tupelo, Mississippi at the time. There were not a lot of Muslims in Tupelo, Mississippi, but there were some. And I remember reading the reports in the newspaper afterwards of how some of them were being treated in our immediate area. And just the assumption that all Muslims are bad. And so that leads to just what Vicki said. All kind of, well, if they're bad, then we have to have some hand in God's retribution against them, whether it be discrimination, all the things, all the bad things. And I had never really, I had never really been around a Muslim before, a um not until I got to Huntsville. When I was in grad school, I was cleaning houses for extra money. And there was this very wealthy Muslim family that reached out to me. They heard me from a friend of a friend and asked me if I would clean their home once a week. And um, it was a huge home. And so I, I would go and we got to be acquaintances. I would not say friends, the, the woman and I. And um we were having a conversation one day about, and somehow or another discrimination came up. I don't remember how. That was a very, that was a long time ago. I don't remember. But it did come up. And I remember asking, I remember being very honest with her and telling her my experience in Tupelo. 
and she smiled and she said, yes, that's pretty, that was pretty normal for them. And even until this day, and I remember her tears, I mean, she's just, her eyes just welled up with tears as she was talking to me. We were sitting on the couch together and she said she was still in Saudi Arabia when that happened, but she said that it broke her heart to see that on the news that day because she said that is not who I am that is not the God that I worship that is not expected of us that's not required of us to follow Allah and she said I wept for days thinking of the people that lost their lives and it just broke me and I remember thinking in that moment We never get to the real heart of God by pushing people away who are different from us. And I think because you were at Imago Day, you get that. You live that out every day of your life. You believe that we don't get to the heart of God by pushing people away or, or demonize, demonizing a whole, a whole people group. But to listen to the story of someone who is different from us that maybe just a few years ago we might have seen differently. I think it's profound and it's necessary and it's needed. Yeah, the Ninevites were not that great. We just have to be honest with that, right? But Jonah had no idea what God had intended with the Ninevites. He just needed to trust God and just do it. But he couldn't. This, I, I think about Jonah, I was thinking about Jonah this week, that God needs to meet a God. Jonah needed to meet a God of restorative theology, not retributive theology. He needed to know a God that doesn't send people to the woodshed, but a God who longs to lovingly and kindly hold up a mirror and honestly see ourselves, to see himself not to judge and condemn, but to help us be better, love better, be kinder, to love others better, clearly, to love ourselves better, clearly. I am a very much a self-effacing kind of a person, but I love that one of my dear friends, Mandy, if she's ever in earshot of me saying something self-effacing, I immediately get the sweetest and kindest sermon in about two minutes that you could ever hope to have. She just will not tolerate that. And for the most part, I'm joking, but there's always a little bit of truth under every little joke, right? It's not to see ourselves in a way that makes us feel worse. Oh, what a worm am I. That's not it but to see ourselves clearly and to see ourselves in love, in love from a God who created us and loves us and even created and loves the people that we don't like so much. I pray this morning that you and I can know better a God of restorative theology, a God of redemption, not punitive, who will redeem our judgment of others who will expand our hearts and minds, 
to see the other in a different way.